0: Join me, Dr. Kathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooltop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Fiona Spargo-Mabs is director and founder of the Daniel Spargo-Mabs Foundation, a drug and alcohol education charity which she set up in 2014 in response to the death of her 16-year-old son, Daniel. Having started her working life as an English teacher, Fiona brings to this work a wide range and depth of experience from many years of working in education at operational and strategic management levels locally and nationally, specializing in work with parents and families. She is the author of I Wish I'd Known Young People, Drugs and Decisions, a Guide for Parents and Carers, that's brought out by the Sheldon Press in 2021. And her second book for parents, Talking the Tough Stuff with Teens, will be published later this year. The foundation aims to support young people to make safe choices, reduce harm through increasing their understanding of the effects and risks of drugs and alcohol and improving their life skills and resilience. They work with young people, parents, teachers, professionals in schools, colleges, and communities across the UK. Fiona's passionate commitment to do all she can to prevent what happened to her son happening to anyone else, drives everything that she does. And her foundation is www.dsmfoundation.org.uk. Well, a very warm welcome to you, Fiona.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting
0: me on. And, you know, I have to start the podcast by, you know, passing my sincerest condolences on to you for the loss of your son, Daniel.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: And it's clear from that biography that your very painful experience has fueled some really important work that you're doing in this area.
1: Yes, absolutely. I know when Dan died, we realized a lot of things. And one of them was that there was an enormous gap in terms of the resources that were available for schools to then in turn make available to young people and that young people were facing decisions about drugs on an increasing basis. And more frequently than a lot of parents might realize. And Dan, of, of course, was incredibly special. He was my son and he was, and I am very biased in terms of everything that I would say about him. But but he was also just Dan, you know, and it, and it made us realize how, how easy it is for anybody really to make a few decisions or one decision or a series of decisions, but that have the potential to go very badly wrong. Obviously, what happened to Dan was the worst case scenario, but there's no sort of harm or damage that drugs or alcohol can do that isn't avoidable, just that being armed with better understanding of
0: those risks, with better education. Well, let's talk a little bit about the prevalence of drug use. I think these days parents need to be kept very much up to date with what drugs we're actually talking about and, and how those have evolved and changed over time.
1: Yes, yes, because I think however young you are as a parent, Parents say to us, even if they've got they've got children in in maybe twenty or twenty two with younger siblings, they'll say, "Oh my goodness, mum! Oh my goodness, dad! It's so different now than it was when they were teenagers." It's a rapidly changing environment. That said, a lot of the substances will be the same that kind of come and go, and the main one, of course, is cannabis. Obviously, alcohol. But in terms of the controlled substances, cannabis is is incredibly widespread for young people and of course, everywhere, and being increasingly normalized as well, and very, very, very much stronger than it was. It's got stronger and stronger and stronger over the last 50 years. So for parents who may have been around cannabis themselves when they were younger, they probably weren't in their middle teens, for one thing, and it probably wasn't as anything like as strong as it is now. And it's not that it, you know, in the good old days when drugs were drugs and nobody came to any harm, it's not that it's like that. It's just very different, but there are a kind of consistent range of substances that we're aware that young people are making decisions about that they really need to understand in terms of risks and parents as well. So one of the things that we do, I mean, obviously there are various surveys around this, the school survey that the government commissions and COVID has kind of thrown a spanner in so many, I'm not thrown a spanner, that's the wrong phrase really, but it's changed lots and lots of behaviours in lots of ways. And we don't really know quite what that's going to look like if we ever get to the other side of it. But when we go and talk to schools, before we go and speak to Year 11, 12, 13, so 15 to 18-year-olds, we always send a survey out ahead because we obviously we we only get a little bit of time with them and we really want to make sure that that's as useful as it possibly can be for them. And we know by then that drugs are going to be around for them and they'll be very aware of what the issues are and what they know already and what they feel would be useful with that time. And so that's an incredibly useful tool for us, but it brings some really useful information as well that we can then use more widely. But one of the questions we ask is, What are the substances that you are aware are around for people in your year group? And what comes out top of that is always alcohol and then vaping and then cigarettes and then cannabis. So those four have always been top. And this is prevalence. It's not asking anyone to confess anything. So it's just perceptions of what's around. Now, up until maybe 18 months ago, a really clear fifth was nitrous oxide. So those little silver canisters that you see at the side of the road and in parks and things. Now that number five is ketamine. And Nitrous oxide has kind of dipped a bit, but it's nitrous oxide, it's cocaine, it's MTMA, but MTMA is uh, the same as ecstasy, just in a different form. And then things like LSD, magic mushrooms, Xanax and steroids feature there as well. But it's those, there's around about 12 substances that are things that are round and about and to different degrees in different social environments but those are the core things that it's really useful for young people to be aware of and for parents to know are the things that their kids might be coming across especially as they get older through their teens and move off to university as
0: well Fiona it's apparent from many surveys that have been done that particularly mid teens you know think quite a few, a number of them, 30% from a recent government survey would think that trying cannabis to see what it's like is an okay thing to do. And I think the attitudes to vaping or taking cannabis, there seems to be, as you say, a sort of a normalization of these behaviors. So how do you begin when you do your talks in schools challenging that? You've talked about getting them to surface and think about the drugs that they can name already. But we know that telling them not to do it won't work. So let's talk about how you would approach that in a school setting.
1: And um, As you say, there are a lot of myths around about cannabis and it's a really difficult time for teenagers particularly to navigate those or kind of to understand what the nature of those risks because cannabis has become really visible you know so it's how often do you watch a film and people are smoking weed and dramas and dramas that are targeted specifically at at young people I don't know I mean it depends where you live in I live in South London you can't walk very far without smelling that really strong smell of cannabis but it's really confusing as well around all the arguments around medicinal cannabis you know there's this assumption that if something's medicine, it must therefore be safe. Of course, as we know, medicines have huge levels of risk, depending on the medicine, those risks are managed for us. But for a number of young people, they can think if something's used for medicine, therefore, it it must be something that's safe. There's also increasing parts of the world that are legalising cannabis. I mean, sometimes when they're seeing cannabis being used in the media, in various sorts of media, um, whether it's music videos, or films, or dramas, or whatever, it is being smoked legally. And so that's a really confusing message because for young people as well, they can think, well, if something's legal, therefore it must be safe. You If things are harmful, then the law will be in place to protect us from them. Plus there's all this stuff about CBD all over the place. So how many high streets have got a shop that's openly selling CBD, which isn't illegal. So there's there's nothing wrong with that, but it's marketed as a cannabis product. So quite often there'll be a cannabis leaf there. So we do quite a lot of dispelling those myths. I mean, there's a whole kind of, well, it's just a bit of weed and it grows in the ground. So how can it be bad for you? And so Coming at those where the origin of that kind of chipping away at cannabis being something that's risky and then coming at it with kind of really understanding how that's acting on the brain and that it's impairing the bit of your brain that helps you with learning and memory and motivation and mood and, and the way that it's got so incredibly strong now. The fact that that's now leading to increasing numbers of teenagers ending up needing professional treatment for cannabis. By far, 89% of young people that are under 18 that are having drug and alcohol treatment are there for cannabis. By far more than all the other substances put together. And kind of talking around both the origins of the myths, but also what the risks are specific to the UK now. I mean, it doesn't really matter in a way what's happening in the US states where it's legal. It doesn't matter what they're seeing on films and dramas. What matters is the risks from cannabis that's being sold illegally in the UK now, which is the only way you can get cannabis in the UK now, unless you can get it on prescription, which is very difficult. That's another conversation. But also the vulnerability that is unique to adolescents because their brain is just going through this such a critical period of change and putting really putting any substance into your system that the way that psychoactive substances are working anyway is by altering the way that your brain functions. And when your brain is so going through such an important period of change, it's more vulnerable to think to being harmed by that sort
0: of thing than at any other time of life. I think when I've ever spoken to teenagers who use cannabis, they would often be very animated in their arguments uh, for cannabis and talk about the fact it makes them feel relaxed or it's part of their cultural heritage. Or if I've heard all sorts, I remember being in a School hall full of teenage boys. And they were so really keen to share how passionate they felt about that particular drug. And I think, gosh, mm-hmm. you know, chipping away at those assumptions and perceptions about the benefits of that drug, particularly when it is so highly promoted by musicians, for example, that they might look yes. up to, it's really quite a challenge.
1: It is a challenge. It is a challenge. But it's a a challenge that's worth taking on. And one of the things that's really difficult for teenagers, especially kind of middle teens, is that they haven't necessarily seen the fallout of it. Because it one of the things with cannabis is sort of it chips away, you know, it takes its time to take its toll. It's not like, you know, if you get a dodgy pill or something's incredibly strong or you know if you're taking something else you might know the effect fairly immediately and you might know somebody that's had a really bad experience but it's quite easy to sustain a myth that cannabis is really no big deal when you're 14 15 and maybe seeing people around you smoking weed and not coming to any harm but if you talk to older teenagers or young people at university or people in their mid-20s a lot of them will know someone whose life has been limited in some way or other by cannabis certainly if you talk to parents Almost all know somebody who's got a child who's developed really significant mental health problems, and that's the risk to young people from cannabis. It's not that you'll have a great time or you'll drop dead. You know, it's not. It's not that sort of risk that they might associate with something like, for example, MDMA or ecstasy. It's the impact that it can have on their mental health. You're three times more likely to develop common mental health disorders like depression and anxiety, but also you increase your risk twice as likely to have psychotic experiences which can be really frightening and to do this obviously as well this really close connection with developing psychosis which is such a really devastating mental illness and those are the things that take longer to develop and are harder to spot and can get muddled up with all sorts of other things that are going on for teenagers when so much is going on for teenagers
0: and Fiona, you talked about earlier access to drugs. I think you mentioned something about where they get drugs from, which I'm very interested in because I think parents would be surprised mm-hmm. to know that the online drugs marketplace, that you know, using social media, there are multiple ways. It's not just meeting someone in a park corner. It's adverts and pop-ups on, mm. on, on young people's social media feeds can be very blatant, can't they?
1: Absolutely. It's been a really growing concern over the last... I mean, three, four years really. It's an area of work that I've been particularly involved in over the last kind of two, two and a half years. And I'm chairing a working group actually that's working with the social media platforms and the police and academics and other charities working in this space because it's a really difficult space to regulate and it's difficult to tackle. It's really getting better, but parents really need to be aware how easy it is to access drugs for one thing through social media but also how exposed young people can be to drugs through their social media without even going looking for it i mean if you want to look for it you can and the platforms are putting various measures in place so there are there are things coming now where if you do a particular search something will pop you up and signpost you to talk to frank which is the government site for young people lots of information or where you can get treatment or help or support so there there is a lot of good work going on but there's but it's an ideal space for for dealers but things can appear on there it's snapchat seems to be the main one, but but often that's only because it's encrypted. Those conversations can start in those more public spaces of Instagram, TikTok, and Snapchat. Those are the big three anyway, but it's really worth parents knowing that this is something that's likely to be around and for their teenagers it probably doesn't seem like a big deal because it's probably something that's just there and they're just aware of because it's something that i've been doing some some work on particularly we've run a survey the last two springs and i was involved with the first uk based research that did, that was published in 2019 now and so we used the same questions that they'd asked in their survey of 16 to 24 year olds And we asked 13 to 15-year-olds, so back in 2020, and then we repeated that in spring last year. We need to do it again this year. We opened it up to 18s. But we found that one in three 15-year-olds had seen drugs being offered for sale on their social media. And one in three 15-year-olds who'd bought drugs had bought them through social media. And there are risks inherent to that around it just being something that seems very normal it's easy to access the easier something is to access the more likely we are to access it it makes it so easy to get hold of as well because things can be just delivered to your home so quickly or to another address you know to a dropbox or something but it also can feel safer to young people it's kind of it's in that social space where they spend so much of their time but there are things that they can do and that parents can talk to them about i mean blocking accounts If if there's something that makes them feel uncomfortable, then they can block that account. And that will increasingly send messages to the social media companies about that account, especially if it's an adult account that's sending messages to under 18s. But reporting is really important as well. Hardly any young people report, but that's a really good way of making the social media platforms alert to what's going on. But looking at privacy settings for parents being aware of what can be done. There's lots of information on the platform's websites about what's available, but is it so blatant? And adverts that just look like anything else, buy one, get one free, special offers, incentive buys, you know, it's a whole Different world that parents won't be aware of because we don't get those. I've never been, actually, I have once been offered drugs on my social media, but only once.
0: Well, Fiona, something, and maybe I'm just really, you know, easily shocked, Mm -hmm. but I think it's deeply shocking when you see 14, 15 year olds, their Instagram profile picture is them vaping in a cloud of smoke. Or they might have the symbol for cannabis in their profile. I mean, that to me is indicative that parents aren't monitoring closely enough how their child is presenting themselves in that digital space and potentially they're opening themselves up to harm and and risk as well. Yeah. Parents and
1: teenagers and boundaries, and it's a really difficult, it just doesn't have to be a difficult conversation at all, but it can feel as if it is. And I know the conversation thing is is so important. The parent-child conversation is so important. And understanding risk and navigating risk is is at the heart of that. But for parents, really understanding that that's something that their children are dealing with online in the same way as, as offline. And parents probably do, but probably feel incredibly underskilled in terms of tackling it but a simple thing as simple as looking at that profile and framing it within the context of i'm concerned about that you're safe having a conversation that starts you know if, you, if they happen to have listened to this podcast then there was somebody saying my goodness one in three 15 year olds had seen drugs being sold on their social media if you have you ever seen anything what about your friends you know coming at it with that kind of curious approach can I have a look at, you know, is that something that's coming up for you? And the younger you can start that, the less awkward it can get because obviously teenagers need their space and privacy and, and their own kind of emerging identity and everything as they grow through their teens. But it's about making sure that those teenagers are safe online as well as offline.
0: Now, Fiona, something that very much comes through your brilliant book, and that is replicated, I know as a researcher in the research evidence, is the power of parental communication between parent and child as a protective asset. So I wanted to just dwell on that. You've hinted at it, but the art of communication with teenagers about these issues. So imagine teenagers come home very, very drunk, you know, on a Saturday night or something happens, or you've discovered vaping paraphernalia in their bedroom, or you've, you find weed in their school blazer. What advice do you have about how to initiate those conversations?
1: Well, there are different kinds of conversations, the sort of the protective conversation, if you like, the sort of preventative conversation where you're, you're making that a space that's comfortable for you both to come back to when you need to, and you're kind of, you're being able to talk around what the risks might be, what some of the effects can be. Lots and lots of listening always in any sort of conversation, of course, but an understanding decision-making and what can make that so difficult when they're teen. So all of those would be in both of those conversations. But if you've actually found something, if you're aware that your child is using drugs. I mean, if you find that out because they're under the influence of something, then the best time to have a conversation with it not while their head is under the influence of a psychoactive substance, but to make them aware in that space that that will be a conversation that, that will be happening and, and be happening sort of fairly soon. It'll be the next day or whenever it is, but that needs to be a conversation that happens. But it's really important for parents to Give that child the space to talk about what's going on for them because it's very easy as a parent to jump in with a massive panic, obviously to fear the worst because we're we're aware of what the worst could be, but there will be something that's going on. For most young people, if they do use drugs, it will be a dip of the toe and it's not that it's without risk, as I know to my cost, but it's mostly they don't come to harm. So there is reason to panic, but there's also reason to take a deep breath and hold on to that. And it's important to that that conversation is a conversation that doesn't get shut down, because if that's something that either of you need to come back to, it's really important that you can so that the giving your child the opportunity to think think about, they may not know quite why they did it or why they're doing it or what's going on for them, but, but they may. And in having that conversation, they may then be able to reflect on, actually, I don't know I don't think that's such a good idea for me to be doing that. And and understanding the risks is so important at that stage. So if you know what it is that they're around, do your research, find out what those risks might be. Look on our website. We've got lots of information there and signposting to organisations that have got lots of very detailed information about drugs. So so do your research, but also have those conversations around decision-making and navigating those social spaces. How you can manage decisions when you're with your friends or people you want to be your friends or people that are because as you know it, it makes it it makes it so much harder to make your own independent decisions but we also as parents have to recognize that most of the time we'd love to think that our children only ever do risky stuff because of the bad peers that are influencing them to do bad stuff but you know actually a lot of the time it's curiosity or it's temptation or it just looks like fun it's or everyone's doing it and it's just kind of just what you do. So we have to be thinking about what that motivation is, is important as well. But if you've got a child that's developing problems that you're recognising, maybe you've seen signs in their behaviour, you know, you, perhaps they're falling away from old friendship. I mean, the trouble is a lot of these are very normal through teenage years, but if they're getting in trouble at school or their performance is dropping at school, if they're becoming more isolated, if there are things like you've noticed maybe money going missing from home, if if you've got concerns about your child generally, if they're taking less care of themselves, those may be nothing to do with drugs, but it would be something that you would be wanting to have a conversation about, about what your concerns are and what might lie behind it. But there comes a point with a lot of these things where they may need professional help and you may need professional help. And and then there are places that you can go to find that. Every local authority commissions a, a young people's Drug and Alcohol Service, so they can get professional help there. There are places that you can go online, fam and drug fam have lots
0: of good support for families. I think well, two things I'm drawing out of this discussion is, number one, I think it's good to be on the front foot. So, for example, my 12-year-old may not know anything about cannabis or all sorts of different types of drugs, but if I'm on the front foot, if I get in there early, if I talk to him about different types of drugs or occasionally if you see nitrous oxide capsules in the park, instead of sort of hiding them from him, I could say, do you know what that is? That's a dangerous substance. Do you know why? Let's do a bit of, so you sort of lean into the curiosity rather than away from it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's a balance in a way because you don't want kind of to introduce too much information too young and kind of increase curiosity. But on the other hand, they'll they'll probably know an awful lot more than parents would like to think because- there is an awareness, a greater awareness from a younger age um, than we would ever have had when we were teenagers ourselves. But absolutely taking those opportunities when they come along. If something's up, there are often stories in the news that are related to drugs. Maybe there's been a big haulage of cocaine on a shipping container, or maybe there's there's just been a whole load of arrests that were made for county lines, drug dealing. And if there's something that comes up, then absolutely take all of those opportunities as they come along. And 12, kind of 10, 11, and 12 are really good ages to be starting opening up those conversations because it can then become something that's more comfortable to come back to. If it's just a conversation that's out there, if it's something you've never talked about, then it gets harder to open that up. It's never too late to have that conversation. but The earlier you can have it, like you say, so that you're on the front foot and not caught on the back foot because you've just seen something or or heard something or overheard something.
0: I also really like one of the tips in your book about with younger children, even when you're dishing out medicine, if they're poorly or you're taking medicine yourself for any reason, that you teach them that sort of etiquette that drugs, their age ranges on medications for a reason. And just sort of gently showing them that they have to be a little bit more wary about medicines in general.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think that's another thing that's useful for parents to know that I think many parents and I count myself among them previously anyway since I started doing all this um, which is why I called my book I wish I'd known because there's so much that I wish I'd known but we know a lot already as parents and I think we can feel empowered that we know a lot more than we think we do and there's lots of transferable knowledge but certainly from an early age if children have got a really good understanding of the risks that are around medicines they're the same risks for illegal drugs you can have too much that's why you get those really clear instructions about that don't Usage and frequency and you can see exactly where it's been made and exactly what's in it and you've got all of that information because there are risks in medicines but those risks are managed in these ways and having an understanding that drugs more broadly have inherent risks and a a similar kind of base of risks but also for parents you'll know lots of stuff about the risks of alcohol and not just in terms of the risks around the substance but the risks that the variations that there can be in terms of any individual that's using a particular substance on any particular occasion and in different environments and how all of those can affect the experience that person has and affect the risk and Knowing that, that we know a lot already can really help. We may not know anything about ketamine. We may never have heard of MDMA, but we do know a lot of stuff about risk and managing risk that we can bring to those conversations as well. And helping children understand that from a really early age is really good
0: starting point. I think it's quite counterintuitive for parents, again, that the things that we think will work don't work. So it's proven from research it's ineffective to just tell them to say no or scaring them with very shocking images or just that those things don't work. It's easy to imagine why parents would be surprised by that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because as you say, it's really counterintuitive. And that is a generalisation. I mean, there might be some, you know, your child, and it might be that, I I, I don't know how many parents would say don't do it, and they never do it in their entire life. I mean, there may be some children that grow through their teens and would do that. But for some children, knowing that worst case scenario and seeing some traumatic picture or something might be enough. But the evidence shows that it's not that the just say no approach, which was, goes back to the 1980s and Nancy Reagan and then Grain Chill and there. there was even a song, if anybody's old as me, to remember that. But there was a lot of research done around it, as you say, and it was just shown that not only did it not work, but it actually increased the risk for some young people. And, of course, almost all children got that education programme in the States and they've got the, um, an enormous... Drug problem in the US at the moment, a lot of that with opiates, and there's all sorts of different factors at work. But in terms of the protection of the just say no, of course, that is always going to be your safest option, but it's not enough. It's not enough just to have that in your armoury. And the worst case scenario is that shock for, the more they're around people that see drugs being used by other people and they're not dying or they're not becoming addicts, I and mean, actually they seem to be having quite a good time that authority that comes from this awful thing's going to happen if you touch this stuff is gone. But it is it is counterintuitive. I agree.
0: So Fiona, imagine your 16-year-old is going off to you know a, a festival this summer or off to um, numerous big birthday parties. Your 18-year-old, the conversation going out the door isn't going to be sufficient, is it? It's all of these building block conversations over time. Yeah, absolutely. and. A
1: lot of that isn't just, it's information and understanding, but knowing where they can go to find out the information that they need about what's around. All that understanding of decision-making and risk management. But it's all those protective things that you can build in through the conversations that you have and the relationship you have and all that connectedness and communication, that parent-child stuff that's so important, that anything you can do that's building their self-esteem, anything that's building their problem-solving skills and their self-regulation. All of those things are so important in terms of managing risk. And that balance between that really tricky letting them go thing as they get older, that it's knowing that there are values and that there are boundaries and that someone knows it's important that somebody knows where you are and when you're going to be back that can be really protective it's that really tricky balance between being too lenient and being too rigid and strict both of which can present risks to young people in terms of drugs and alcohol but that narrow ground but those are the the kind of the building blocks but having that information really kind of rooted in them. But those those conversations are also important kind of that are linked to particular occasions so that there will be certainly at festivals, if they're going on to festivals, just knowing that there will be, there are more drugs around at festivals than anywhere else on earth. They'll see people using drugs. They'll most likely be offered something and knowing that ahead and then preparing ahead for that is really important so that they've got that heads up. And then there are so many things that you can then bring into a conversation Conversation around so, what do you need to do to make sure you're safe? Make sure that you know where the medical and welfare area is in case you need it. Make sure you've got a really big water bottle so that you don't skip queuing up in a big long queue because your band's just about to go on stage. Because being hydrated is so important if substances are around, and really important that they stick together and they've got kind of meet up time and place in case their phone goes flat or they lose their signal. And you know, just really practical things like that. But also all the harm reduction, especially as Children get older, you know, as they get into the later teens and and early 20s, it's so important that they understand harm reduction. That really is an uncomfortable conversation for parents, but it is so important because they could literally, well, they could reduce a lot of harm. You can't make risk zero if anybody uses drugs. We always talk about it for older teenagers in relation to their friend. If they're with a friend who's using drugs... And they're being that sensible, clear-headed friend, which they absolutely need, then going through that, that these are the things they need, you know, it's really important you stick together, it's really important you check in regularly, it's really important that kind of that goes don't mix stuff message is so important, that start low, go slow message is so important, you know, not only are they self-medicating, but they're also testing it on themselves, unless they happen to be somewhere where the loop or another drug checking organisation is, they don't know what's in it, they don't know how strong it is. And so, having all of that in their back pocket on a kind of an ongoing basis, but also on a kind of, on this occasion, it's really important that I just check that you
0: got all this stuff in your armory. It's quite scary thinking that, one's own child might be the friend in that scenario, because it's an enormous responsibility. And I'm sure we're all aware of cases in the media where a teenager has been too frightened to tell an adult that something had gone wrong and, you know, and that hadn't worked out in the end at all. So it is a very interesting lens through which to educate young people, if you are the friend in that scenario, how you can be a great friend and the steps that you might need to take.
1: Yeah, and they will almost always be with their friends. And it means that you can get, it kind of serves, well, many purposes really, but it's a way of getting that information into young people's heads in case they're the one that's using a substance. But also if they are that friend, because as you know, teenagers take on huge responsibilities for their friends. I'm just doing a whole load of kind of reading research and case studies and and interviews for the book that I'm writing at the moment, but around so many of those issues, self-harm, suicidality, eating disorders, that very often young people will be talking to a friend and swearing them to secrecy and, and that friend is then carrying that around. But certainly in terms of getting help, it's so important to talk to your children as a parent about how important it is to get help if they have any concerns for somebody that they're with and they will not get in trouble. So often young people worry that they're going to get in trouble, especially if drugs are involved, because obviously there's the legality of it all. But we are assured continuously and we, we pass that assurance on to young people from police and paramedics that they are just concerned about getting that person where they need to be to make sure that they are looked after in the way they need to be. But I just because of my own story and kind of the nature of the work that i've been doing since dan died i i know too many parents who've lost teenagers to drugs and for for some of them one of the many things that's incredibly hard is that they know that their friends didn't get help when they could have done and they will never know whether that would have made the difference that it might have needed to for their child and you can completely understand how they might panic they might have taken stuff themselves they might not have known quite what was going wrong and if something is going badly wrong for somebody you're with and you're just a 14 15 year old that's really scary but it's not only is it hard for those parents but that is so hard for those friends so just that message to if you've got any concerns just call 999 and a very nice person will talk very calmly to you and ask you lots of questions and find out what's going on and they will take it in hand from there you know, they'll make the decision about whether an ambulance needs to be called and so on
0: Really really important particularly with the summer coming and parties and and, and making sure teenagers are aware of pathways to support you know, and even asking them, do they know what the pathways to support are at that particular festival? Have they got, you know, their phone charged, as you mentioned, do they know that they can ring 999 and that they have your encouragement to do so if their friend is in trouble? I think that's all incredibly important rather than just hoping everything will be okay.
1: Absolutely. Having those tools ahead. Another thing that we talk to young people and to parents about actually, as well as setting up an escape plan. So just in case there, sometimes, you know, when you're with your friends, maybe it's going in a different direction than you feel comfortable with, or you're going to... Get caught up in something, or you're, you've just got concerns, or maybe you just don't feel safe anymore. But if you're with your friends, it can be really difficult. It's quite brave to be able to say, actually, I don't want to be here anymore. But if you've set something up with a parent or a carer, or you could do it with a responsible older sibling, someone who's really reliable and isn't going to be there, and you just need to have some sort of code that you can send through. It could just be an emoji. It doesn't matter what it is, as long as you both know what that means that triggers the other person to call. You could do it by text, but a call can be a kind of more intrusive noise into that moment. But you can make something that would work for you and then kind of have a little kind of suite of excuses that you could use depending on where you are. You know, if it's a party at your friend's house or you're out in the park and something's happening, you know, it could just be, that's my dad. He's locked himself out again. I'm really sorry. I'm just going to have to get home now. Whatever it is, or it could be that was my mom. I couldn't tell what she was saying. I'm really sorry, but I can tell that something's wrong. But just to give them an excuse. What the vital thing for parents, if that's something that you've set up, is you have to promise that you're not going to ask any questions, which is really, really hard. But your child will think twice before triggering it if they know they're going to get a massive hard time from their mum or dad. But it just gives them a get out just in case they need it.
0: Now, Fiona, your book that we've been talking about, I Wish I'd Known, that is so comprehensive. It's one of the most comprehensive books I've ever read. It's absolutely so packed with tips for parents that it's hard to even pull out particular ones. But you've also produced or you are producing three short eBooks. Can you tell us a little bit about them, please?
1: Oh, yes. And they should be out soon, hopefully. They're just going to be out digitally, as you say. So I was just very conscious that there are different audiences. The first, I mean, I started really thinking particularly of parents who've got children and teenagers who have various different forms of neurodiversity, but particularly autism and ADHD, and particularly in that combination, actually, as well who are, can be at higher risk of using drugs and alcohol and, and kind of risky behaviors generally, and for all sorts of reasons, and for those, there's a lot of my book that will be hopefully really useful and relevant but there are other things that just need to be come at a, a different way in terms of how you communicate that information how you understand as a parent what their motivation might be you know is it because of managing that social situation is it are they using something maybe to cope with their symptoms or make them feel more normal or understanding what might lie behind it and why managing risk is more difficult but also how you communicate the information they need in a way that's quite different and understanding that decision making as well in that different way so one is for parents of neurodivergent teenagers there's another one that's specifically for schools and colleges because again I wrote this book for parents, but we got so much feedback from teachers and schools saying this is just so incredibly useful for anybody that's working with, with young people. And, but there's a lot that I wanted to say as well for schools. So. What good drug education looks like? What's the evidence base in terms of drug education? What works and what doesn't work? What about a school drug policy? What should be there? and What do you need to be aware of when you're writing a drug policy? How can you embed drug education across the curriculum? How can you engage parents effectively? So all of that's there. And then I wrote another one that's for parents of faith. I'm a Christian and and I wanted to write something that was specifically for parents that i guess share my faith so i think for parents from any faith group there are things that can be protective but also things that that have the potential to perhaps increase risk because there can be kind of expectations of certain behavior and values and it can it can sometimes make it harder to share things and to talk about things but there's also huge potential within that community to be incredibly supportive so a lot of that is my own kind of faith journey through all of this but also tips and advice that are very specific to, what well, within each of those, or again, like in the book, lots and lots of talking points. It's very practical tips and advice and, and signposting where you can go to find out more. This might be useful.
0: So Fiona, those eBooks we will signpost alongside the notes that accompany this podcast within Tooled Up and also signpost to your book. But tell us a little bit about the foundation website and how either schools or parents can interact with it usefully.
1: So the well, you very kindly gave the URL at the beginning. So it's www.dsmfoundation.org.uk, and we've got lots of information on there. So there's information for parents, there's information for young people, there's information about what we do. So the different sorts of drug education we do in terms of workshops for young people and parents and all of our drug education lessons, and they're all adapted for form shorter form time sessions as well, but and for every year group through secondary. And we've got resources for year six as well for transition. But all of those are just free to download from our website if anybody wanted to have a look or to use them they're just there we've got a theatre and education production There's there's a verbatim play that's actually going to become a GCSE drama set text in September which is really exciting and that just tells Dan's story it's um that's in another kind of component of what we do and that's on tour so there's lots of information about that as well but we've also got lots and lots and lots of signposting to other organisations and places that people can go to find more specific information as well. So do have a look and you can contact us through that as well if anybody wanted to.
0: Well, Fiona, I'm deeply impressed by all of the work that you do. It is incredibly comprehensive and I love the way you combine, you know, research evidence with practical tips that parents and schools can actually use. So thank you so much for your contribution to this field and we will be definitely signposting all of our school communities towards the resources that you've created and curated for them thank you so much
1: no thank you so much thank you
0: take care bye-bye Bye bye. this get a grip podcast is brought to you by tooled up education the home of evidence-based tips on parenting family life and education www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.